0: Hi, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. Listen to God's word for us. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hook, starring Robin Williams, is one of my favorite childhood movies. And I'm sure that I drove my parents insane because we rented that movie not just once, not twice, but probably three, and maybe, chances are really good, four times from Blockbuster. Do you remember those? Fun days. Anyway, the premise of this movie of Hook is that Peter Pan has grown up, this is Robin Williams, and uh, he has kids of his own, and he's kind of lost all of his wonder and his imagination, and he's disconnected from his kids, and he's kidnapped back to Neverland on a journey to rediscover his inner child. Well, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when they're sitting down for a ritual. It's this dinner game. And while they're sitting there, Robin Williams, Peter Pan, is extremely hungry and out come these pots and these drinks just steaming. You can't see anything. All you can see is the steam and everybody's like accentuating the smells, just talking about how wonderful they are. And then as they come in, people are groaning. They say a quick word of grace and then off come the lids and there's nothing. There's no food, there's no drinks, but then as Peter Pan, Robin Williams, looks around, he looks at the disheveled Lost Boys, and they te- seem to be just gorging themselves on this imaginary food as if they're enjoying a feast. And Peter Pan is utterly discouraged. Now, you follow the movie a little bit longer, and then it returns to this table. And eventually, Peter Pan's imagination reawakens. And it comes to a climax when he's sitting at the table, and he finally, finally is able to see. The food and able to feast and have fun with the whole crew. Not only is Peter Pan's imagination transformed, not only is Peter transformed, but what they can do together is all the more transformed. Now one of the greatest distinctions between human beings and animals is our ability to imagine. Albert Einstein brilliantly quipped that imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited whereas imagination encircles the world. Now, of course, the 20th century scientist in no way, shape, or form is trying to downplay knowledge. Instead, he's ratcheting up something that we often think we should outgrow, our imaginations. Our imagination is the faculty of forming new ideas or images not present to the senses. Our imaginations, rather than solving questions, often they invite us deeper into the mysteries of truth. In Jesus's parables, he employs our imagination to help us see the world through God's eyes. So I would like to do that this morning, and I want to do just a quick imaginative exercise. I want to invite you and kids, if you're watching at home, I want to deeply encourage you to do this too. Give your parents a break. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes, and I want you to imagine God's kingdom. What does it look like? What do you think it looks like for all of God's purposes and his values to be perfectly exercised for everyone? What does it feel like? What images come to mind? Open your eyes. One of the oft often most often used images of the kingdom of God by Israel is that of a feast. And while this is a picture that's thrown throughout all of Scripture, one area that it comes to the fore is in the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 25, when you have this beautiful picture of the kingdom of God coming and breaking into the world, and it's pictured of this feast where all peoples are feasting together, and what God is doing and bringing into the world. That is one of the most common images, and in the midst of all of the things that we could notice when it comes to this feast, One area, one of the most pertinent questions to ask when you're looking at this particular image is, who is at the table? Who is at the table? The answer to that question is at the center of what what Jesus has come to do and what he has called you and me to be about. And Jesus is inviting us not to remake the world in our image, but rather to see the world through his eyes. But that's going to take a reawakening of our imagination. And just like Peter Pan Maybe, just maybe, we won't just see the world differently, but it'll actually transform every meal we partake in thereafter. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. At the beginning of Luke chapter 14, we find that Jesus is in the house of a prominent religious leader, and he's surrounded by prominent folks. You know, Jesus was a hot ticket in his day, and anybody who is anybody was on this invite list. And as we enter into the conversation at verse 12 of chapter 14, we see that Jesus is actually challenging the host. He looks around the table and sees people of prominent uh, means and, and social status, and he challenges the host and says, when you throw a dinner party, instead of inviting people who can engage in a quid pro quo, instead, think through who you can invite to this dinner party that can't pay you back. When you throw dinner parties, invite people who cannot repay you with this deep confidence that God in the end will repay you for your generosity. And so that is how Jesus begins. And then someone raises a glass in verse 15, and we read that someone says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, in that day, this is a way for someone to kind of raise an issue for a rabbi to talk about. They want Jesus to talk about the kingdom of God of God. And Jesus taking his cue, he kind of ignites their collective kingdom imagination and he tells them a story. It goes like this, a man is really excited to throw a dinner party and so he sends his servant out to go and tell and announce the whole to the neighborhood, hey I'm going to throw this dinner party and also to start gathering some RSVPs. While he sends the servant out and the servant comes back with these RSVPs, he starts purchasing all this food to make sure he has enough for the party. After everything is in place, he sends the servant out again to now announce that the dinner party is ready. But by the time you get to the end of the story, as we heard read here earlier, we find that around the table are not his normal acquaintances. Instead, it's the unexpected, marginalized, overlooked, and forgotten that are feasting there with the master of the banquet. Now, two things are true. One, Jesus is making abundantly clear that he is the king of God's kingdom. And then number two, and this is really important, when Jesus juxtapositions verses 12 through 14 with verses 15 through 24, so these words about who you should actually invite to your table and to your dinner gatherings with this parable, he's making abundantly clear That the table that he's talking about is his table. And it's not something that's way off in the distance, as if the kingdom of God is way out of reach. Instead, the table, in many regards, is now. And it should shape our tables today. Now, I think one of the common errors for us as Christians is that we try to break apart what Jesus has to say in terms of our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. But the Christian faith never, ever, ever lets us do that. I mean, what's the greatest commandment? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. You go to the Apostle, Paul, or Apostle John's writings later, and he says, you can't say, I love God and hate my brother. Those two statements make no sense together. Instead, how we engage God will dramatically impact how we engage those around us, and how we engage those around us give us a window into how we actually are engaging God. So here's what we're to take away from Jesus's brilliant words this morning. The one big idea, if there's anything you take away, it's this, our tables should look like Jesus's table. Our tables should look like Jesus's table. If you're a follower of Jesus, that means our meals, the times that we gather together, the parties that we plan, should include the people the world rejects. And frankly, the people we may very well want to ignore. Our tables should look like Jesus's table. And when it doesn't, we actually find that we are missing out on one of the greatest feasts available to us here and now. Now, if you're anything like me, though, when when I hear that, I have to be honest, my table, when I think about Jesus's rubric, often doesn't look like Jesus's table. My table doesn't often look like Jesus's table. I don't have a broad enough kingdom imagination, maybe don't have a strong enough will, and so I wanted to just do a little bit of diagnostic and highlight three three reasons our tables don't look right, okay? Three, three, Three reasons our tables don't look right according to our text, and here's the first one. The first reason our table doesn't look right is we don't want Jesus at the head. We don't want Jesus at the head. I want you just to imagine for a second this parable in your context. This, imagine you threw like this great party you you were super excited you call all your fam- family and friends in the area and you say hey i've got this great party that i want to have can you come and they're like yeah i'm there put me down and so you buy all this food you go to costco you you really spruce it up and then you get it all ready and you say okay it's the time who's coming are you ready and then you get text after text nabra 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 like just again and again people just say they can't come how would you feel in that moment Like if one person couldn't come, you start to rationalize, okay, they got stuff going on. But if everybody backs out, it feels personal, right? And that's the point of this parable. Everybody, everybody backs out. And you look at all the excuses that are given, the three excuses, every single one of them is lame. Look at verse 18. If you look at verse 18, the first excuse, okay, the common practice in the day is that you would go and look at a piece of property probably over multiple days. And after you've done a full assessment, then you would purchase it. But what's the excuse in verse 18? Hey, I bought a piece of property and now I need to go examine it. Come on, that is a lame excuse. The reality is that these folks were just preoccupied with their own lives. And they didn't want to spend time with the master of the feast. And maybe, just maybe, as you're watching this today, you may be thinking, you know what? I have my own reasons for not really wanting to follow Jesus. I've got my own reasons for not putting him at the head of the table. I'm doing just fine. I'm okay where I'm at. And I'd rather not have someone looking over my shoulder. Well, hear me, if you don't want him at the head, if you don't want him to to set the table before you and to be the head of your life, you're going to miss it. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. We'll miss it. We'll miss the real life. We'll miss the greatest feast of all. We'll miss the kingdom of God. Now, the second reason our tables don't look right is that, frankly, we don't love those whom Jesus invited. We don't love those whom Jesus invited. I, I want you to imagine this scenario, okay? You, you, you take a bus into downtown, and, and maybe you're getting off for work, and then somebody randomly comes up to you and says, hey, there is this primo dinner party happening in one of the best suites in downtown. You've gotta come, it's in this penthouse, it's gonna be astounding. So you take a chance, you take the elevator up, you're given the special code, the doors open, it's extravagant, it's beautiful. I mean, there's dinners, uh, food catered in from Michelin star restaurants. You go to the tables and like all the name tags are these KC royalty, and then you look around and none of those folks are there and it's just people like you, just ordinary folks, people like me. And you start to ask, well, how did I get invited to this thing? I just, I really don't feel like I belong. This doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is, is making himself abundantly clearer. He invites the people that no one really would expect. He goes out of his way to extend this invitation to all people, to the people that most people would overlook. Now, meals Meals had a unique role. I mean, they still have a a pretty important role today, but especially in the first century as a way of kind of communicating status. If you were invited was crucial, what you wore when you were invited and where you got to sit around the table, all of that communicated how important you were or to the opposite, how unimportant you were. And everybody at this meal, everyone was kind of like a who's who. They were either really important or on their way up a really important ladder. And you kind of get this picture that they have this understanding that somehow they are the shoe ins for God's kingdom. And they have a strong conviction as to who's included and definitely who's excluded. Now, there's some reasons for this, and there's actually something deeply we need to understand here. You see, the whole backdrop, this passage in Isaiah 25, It has a rich history. Remember, that's the passage that kind of gives us this prophecy of God's kingdom coming, and it's like this grand feast where everybody's eating together, right? Well, interestingly enough, it has a long interpretive history. And three important texts really give us the framework of what so many in the first century understood. The first text is the Targum, which is kind of like a 6th century B.C. Aramaic commentary on the Hebrew text. The second text is the Book of Enoch. It's like an apocalyptic popular literature in the first century. And then the third was the writings of the Essenes, this Jewish community in Qumran. And each of these took the passage in Isaiah 25 and in their interpretation and explanation went a little bit further. And instead of it being this glorious feast where all these people from the different nations are coming together and God's kingdom is breaking in, instead, it became a passage speaking about the condemnation and the exclusion of the surrounding nations. It shaped the very imagination as to who was invited and who wasn't. Their prejudice shaped the way that they saw the text. And so you see this really strange moment where where Jesus is kind of guiding them in some table rules, right? In verses 12 through 14, invite people who can't repay you, kind of this expanding of the table. And then in verse 15, you find this gentleman who raises a glass and says, blessed is everyone who will eat kingdom, you know, or eat, eat bread in the kingdom. It's kind of a way of saying, look around, folks. This is what heaven's going to look like. <laughs> and Jesus is like, nope. I mean, he, he says it a little nicer because he's not a jerk, but he kind of goes at it in a slight, you know, unique way. And he goes, listen, I've got all these people that I'm going to be inviting to my table, but you're not going to want to sit next to them. And if you're not going to want to be with the people that I'm inviting, then you're not going to want to be at my feast. You see, one of the reasons why our tables don't look right is that we don't love those whom Jesus invited. And if we don't, and we're not willing to love those whom Jesus invited, then we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the best life. We're going to miss the richest of feasts. Now, there's one more reason. There's more, but I'm a pastor, so I'll give you three. One more reason why um, our tables don't look right, and it's this. That we, we just don't, we don't want to serve at his table. We don't want to serve at Jesus' table. Now, the longer you're a Christian, the bigger the temptation is to imagine yourself in an incorrect light. And here it is. This is what I mean. The longer you're a Christian, sometimes you can begin to imagine that the reason you're a Christian, the reason that God invited you into his forever family is because you're smarter than other people. And that somehow God hasn't invited these other people. Somehow you've got it all right. And God made sure that the top of the top were a part of his family. It takes like two seconds to listen to this story that Jesus portrays. To understand just how faulty that understanding is. Instead, we see a God who goes to great lengths to invite anyone and everyone to his table. He wants all who are willing to come and feast with him. And he's willing to go to great lengths to even compel them to come. And then he goes on to say, as we saw in verses 12 through 14, that he wants us to welcome others in the same way he has welcomed us. In other words, our tables should look like Jesus's table. I love the way that theologian N.T. Wright kind of gives a little bit of commentary on this text. He says, Christians reading this anywhere in the world, must work out in their own churches and families what it would mean to celebrate God's kingdom so that the people at the bottom of the pile at the end of the line would find it good news. It isn't enough to say that we ourselves are the people dragged in from the country lanes to our surprise to enjoy God's party. That may be true, but party guests are then expected to become party hosts in turn. Party guests, you and me, are meant to become party hosts in their turn. That's what God longs for us to do. He has invited us to a rich feast to know his kingdom breaking in, and he longs for us to invite those whom we may never expect to always have a seat of hospitality open for anyone who is around us, to go now with this heart of invitation, welcoming in all and having open arms to all whom Jesus has invited his table. So in light of that, I I just had a question for us that seems a bit application oriented and and maybe pretty pertinent to this passage, and it's this. It's a question for me, too. Who's sitting at your table? Who's sitting at your table? Now, I know COVID has made this a little bit more complex, right? Um, But let's be real. All of us have found a way to connect with people, whether it's over Zoom or whether it's walking in the park. We've all figured out some ways to continue to cultivate a level of connection. And maybe it's even some of our online community groups. We've all had these ways that we're trying to figure out. My question is who's sitting at your table? Or in other words, who's never at your table? And why? Is it because someone has a different political leaning? And those conversations feel really taxing? Is it because of prejudice? Is it because of discomfort and some of these other conversations and people are just a little easier? And so you find yourself never eating lunch with them at work, never willing to give them a call, never willing to grab a cup of coffee or to take a walk in the park. What is that for you? Who's never at your table and why? Now some of you may be thinking, Gabe, I don't even know who to ask. I don't know. I don't know how to process some of that. I I don't even know if how to to begin this? Well, let me ask you this. Have you even, have you begin to even prepare yourself to ask the question of someone else? Like if you find that there's someone different sitting across the table in the cube or over on a Zoom call or something along those lines, are you preparing your heart to have those conversations and to invite them into those conversations? Are you praying for opportunities? And are you willing, are you willing to even make yourself a little bit more inconvenient? And so, maybe even a little more stressed, a little more busy, to say yes to actually have someone at the table. Someone at the table who's different than you. Now for me, this is how it worked out. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, It it was a couple weeks ago, I got a call from a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to for a couple months, maybe even a year or so. He was an African-American pastor, Roderick um, Williams. And he said, hey Gabe, we've got this Zoom call going on tonight love for you to jump on it's with some other pastors as we're trying to process and move forward you know as the church in kansas city i had family in town it was not convenient it wasn't ideal frankly at that moment i was like man any other night but but i talked to Allie and we made a decision okay we're gonna do it i'm gonna do it tonight so i hop on the call and here's the deal it made my life a little busy it was a bit awkward for the family in town but at the same time that relationship that yes in that particular moment that's opened up doors, not only for me as a pastor, but other Christ community pastors. And it's building this relational equity, not just over the past couple of weeks, but now we have a timeline for the next few months to build a roadmap of greater unity in Kansas City because of a little bit of spontaneity, a little bit of messiness, a little bit of busyness, and set up some systems for sustainability. So, in light of that, I want you to think about this, okay? If we're going to take Jesus' words seriously and we're thinking about who's at our table and who's not at our table, here's a good spiritual discipline, all right? A habit, and it's this. Think of and try to schedule one intentional table conversation with someone who's different a month. One intentional table conversation a month with someone who's different than you, okay? And maybe that's just the start. It could be someone... The same person each month that you're having this conversation with. It could be a different person each month. Both are are good and healthy. but, But think at least at the very minimum, what's one intentional table conversation you can schedule in, whether it's on Zoom or in person, with someone who's different than you and do it once a month. You see, this is such a crucial component to what it means to be the people of God and to see the kingdom of God breaking in, is to be building relationships, creating space, having a seat at the table for those who are other. And not just always being the host, but sometimes when other people make an invitation to you, you be the guest. You step in, you listen, and you receive. Because listen, our tables, they should look a lot like Jesus's table. And this is how the kingdom of God is breaking in. And sometimes, 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 when we do this, God actually expands his table and puts new people in new seats. Let me tell you what that means, what that looks like. So Rosaria Butterfield um, was an activist in the LGBT community, um, and she was in a committed lesbian relationship. She wrote a pretty um, intense article um, and, and a periodical, and it received some pretty intense feedback. She both got some fan mail, she got some hate mail, some Christians were definitely in the hate mail component, but then she got a really interesting letter from a pastor. It wasn't necessarily in the fan mail category or the hate mail category, but it just asked questions in kindness around presuppositions, ideology, and the overall trajectory of her ideas. At first she didn't know what to do, she didn't put it in the fan mail or the hate mail pile, she just threw it away. But he kept sending like these thoughtful, letters to her in response to the articles and pieces that she was writing till eventually she went and visited his church because she and he, th- this pastor intrigued her and after that church service she went over for a meal and over years not just like a couple weeks but over an extended period of time she slowly surrendered to the love of Jesus and she would say hey it wasn't even that this guy was really eloquent with his questions or his ideas It was that he invited me into his home, into his life, into his table. And you see that's what God's doing. When we're willing to set up our tables, when we're willing to put Jesus at the head of our table, when we're willing to love those whom Jesus has invited, and when we're willing to serve at that table, then God can go about his kingdom breaking in work, redeeming people, and filling up his house with his own. And he's going to keep doing that. He's going to keep inviting. He's going to keep building it up until finally when all of these little banquets, all these little dinners will come to a great climax, to the great banquet that is to come. And who will be seated around that table but people of different ethnicities, different races, different genders, different ages, different socioeconomic status, different orientation, all around centered on Jesus, surrendered to him, spending eternity with Christ and one another. He said the rest of the world may look on on these little meals right now and see empty pans full of steam. But with Jesus's kingdom imagination, we see a feast and it transforms what we're actually able to do together. Let's be about God's kingdom. Let's see if our tables can look more like Jesus's. Let's pray. Dear God, I just want to say thank you that you've invited us to feast. That you really do satisfy our souls. And not in such a way that you keep us motionless, but in the fullness that we have in Christ, we are now invited others to feast. I love the phrase, God, of just that we are one beggar pointing another beggar to bread. And we have this beauty, a beautiful reality of just feasting on you. Jesus. Thank you for inviting us when we don't deserve a seat at the table. Thank you for your grace that's extended to us. Thank you for your kindness that was purchased by your blood to invite us into this family and to feast. Now, by the power of your Spirit, may you give us clarity as to who to ask and to reach out to. Give us a willingness to receive invitations from others and a consistent perseverance to make this a habit and not just a one-off experience. God, guide us, even in these unique times, to build relationships, to open our arms, and to be a community of deep hospitality, and so see your kingdom break in. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Now we turn to a meal that has brought more people together than any other meal this world over. We turn to the Lord's Supper, such that when we partake and we eat It stands in judgment of every dividing wall that has sought to separate God's people throughout the millennia. Here, when we come to eat, we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we partake, it is but a foretaste of the glorious meal to come. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have some elements ready and you would like to partake, now would be a perfect time to do exactly that. If you need a little bit more time to gather some of those elements or to kind of get yourself situated and bring those people around you together, you can go ahead and pause the movie at this time or the, the, you can pause the service at this time and you'll be able to set yourself up in that way. But before we come, let us partake in what has been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "'This is my body, which is for you. "'Do this in remembrance of me.